A star-spanning saga of ancient magic and deep science, vividly told by a modern master, says Dave Gibbons. Kelly Sue DeConnick states, The kind of epic you crave, both noun and adjective. And that doesn't even quite capture Liam Sharp's astonishing scope and vision. There's magic in these pages. Matt Fraction calls it jaw-dropping and epic and massive. He also says this is a gorgeous and incredible and massive swing for the stars that declares his ambitions have taken him to some exciting and undiscovered territories. Bravo, congrats, cheers, and exhale. This is glorious. What are they all talking about? Liam Sharp's upcoming six-issue series, Starhenge, from Image Comics. Liam himself says of the series, I wanted to do my own Image Comic for 30 years. I wanted to do a Merlin comic for even longer than that. This is a culmination of so many dreams and ambitions of mine finally being realized, and that makes it the most exciting and personal comic project I've ever done. I can't wait to see it on the shelves. It's also been described as a mashup of the Green Knight and Terminator with all the Arthurian legends, time travel, and killer robots that entails, plus Merlin, magic, and mayhem. The first issue debuts in comic shops on July 6th, with final order cut off on June 13th. So now's the time to tell your retailers to order you a copy. Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Comic Source. I'm your host Jace here today to talk about a very interesting graphic novel. It's created by two brothers, Reed and Ryan Beeman. I have Reed joining me here today to talk about it. It's set in World War One. It's uh, about some really unsung heroes. You know, especially when we talk about World War Two, World War One. There's this kind of romantic connotation. The soldiers, the guys that fought in the trenches or in the front lines from the beach of Normandy, whatnot, those soldiers or the guys that flew the planes, but really some, some guys that were there risking their lives didn't necessarily, you know, fight the battles, but they were there to kind of help support those that were fighting. So the name of the book is Stretcher Bears. And as I said, Reed Beeman, one of the co-creators is joining me today. Reed, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, a story that deserves to be told. So I want to kind of get into how you and your brother decided that uh, you were going to you know, create this book and tell the story of these stretcher bears. But uh, before we get into that, why don't you give everybody a little bit of your, your background, what you do, how you got into creating comics? Okay. Uh, well, my background, I've always like. I've loved comics, and if anyone is familiar with at least for the East Coast side of the comic book industry, they've probably seen me at Heroes Con. And for a couple years, I've had a booth there, and I've pitched some comics um, around to different publishers. Nothing ever kind of like took off, so I did what most artists do while struggling to break into comics. I, I was a teacher. I was an art teacher for about three years. 
and uh, I was actually working on stretcher bearers and my my wife got a really great job opportunity in Florida and she was like, well, I'm going to follow my dream. I want you to follow yours. So I started really doing comics full time when we moved down to Florida and that was actually right before COVID. So and then when COVID happened, I was working out of an apartment and I was locked up like everybody else. And <laughs> it gave me plenty of time to focus on the stretcher bearers and get that done. So why, why this story? Uh, you know, if you're, if you're deciding to, to create comics, you have a dream of being a comic creator. I mean, most people lean toward the superhero stuff, even though, and, and, and granted, that's what a lot of people think of when they think comics, they think, you know, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But, you know, comics are a medium you can tell any story. And certainly if we look at, uh, you know, manga from, you know, Japan and, and whatnot and uh, European comics, it, mm -hmm. people there, they have a little bit more of an understanding that it's a more diverse genre uh, delivery system, if you will, than just superheroes. Uh, and it's it's starting to change here in the U.S. as well. People are starting to realize a lot of horror, Western romance, that sort of thing. Um, so, again, going back to this idea of stretcher bears, what what made this the story that you and your brother wanted to to self-publish and really try to get out there? Well, I've always had a fascination with World War One history and really kind of like I hate to say obscure wars, but it's they're not wars that we really talk about a lot, like the Korean War. Um, World War One kind of, you know, it's not really covered in American history, at least here in the American school system, at least when I grew up. Um, I think I first encountered it on the History Channel, like growing up. Um, and then I don't know if you'll probably remember, like, uh, do you remember that like A&E used to do like TV movies and they would like sometimes show them they did the Lost Battalion. Oh, yeah, it was it was an A&E special that came on. And I remember it ran like the 4th of July when I was younger. And I don't know, something about it like really captivated me and I wanted to learn more about it. Um, and my me and me and Ryan's, our, our grandfather, he served in the Korean War, and he always would talk to us about that, and that's really never got covered in history class either. So that we always had this drive to read and do research and dive deep into things, especially like I like reading a lot of like memoirs and firsthand accounts in battle, and we really don't talk necessarily a lot about like medical professionals that were in the front lines that served during, especially the first world war, which was like the first mechanization of warfare. Um, and we really don't talk about like the cutting edge of medicine because a lot of medicine that we have now, especially like plastic surgery originated from the battlefields of world war one with, you know, soldiers coming back with horrible disfigurements. And you get to see that a little bit in the comic itself. Um, it's just something I'm interested in. I'm interested in like history, medical history. Uh, my brother, he's a nurse. Our dad, he's a physician's assistant. So we kind of grew up around medicine. So we're familiar with it. And I don't know, it's kind of like a meshing of like interests, war history, comics and medical history and stuff like that. That kind of like became an amalgam of stuff for both of us. And um, about three, four years ago, the publisher of Dead Reckoning, uh, he actually was walking around the Heroes Convention in Charlotte, and he came by my booth, and I actually had drawn a short mini-comic um, 
of these World War One, basically like a dogfight, and he was interested in it. And he said, well, if you ever have a story idea, please feel free to, you know, pitch us something. And the first thing that I pitched him was like, well, let's do it about the stretcher bearers, because that's something that had never been done. Um, and plus, I didn't want to have to draw planes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that sounds really odd to say. It's it's super fun to do, but it, it gets kind of old after a while, just drawing planes over and over again, fighting in the fighting in the sky because you never got to really see what's going on down on the ground because yeah, it's kind of scary. You're flying in this basically cheap wood and like canvas airplane, but like there's even more horror on the ground with like massive craters of mud and like rats and like poisonous gas and stuff. And that it's always been a little bit more interesting. Yeah. That's one of the things about world war one. Um, that I think makes it so interesting and also so horrific. I mean, again, I think World War II, maybe because it was just more recent, um, mm -hmm. I think it, it kind of gets more, I don't want to use the word respect, but more attention, let's let's put it that way. And obviously the heroes of, of World War II, Greatest Generation, very deserving of, of oh, yeah. you know, the, the accolades. But World War One, I, I mean, it was before the Geneva Convention, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of the, the rules of war, warfare, I mean, not that, all war isn't horrific and terrible. People, you know, any loss of life is is you know not to be celebrated. But uh, a lot of the the horrors of World War One, you know, the poison gas that you mentioned, just the um, kind of the conditions that people were put under, uh, it was much more horrific. There, there it was much more. I, I almost want to say traumatic. And again, I'm not downplaying people that mm -hmm. have been in other combat situations. Um, but World War One was really, I think when we first saw, like you mentioned, the mechanization, the industrialization of war, we started creating these bigger mm -hmm. weapons, tanks and automatic weapons, you know, uh, the ships at sea were becoming more sophisticated submarines, that sort of thing, obviously in the air, uh, you know, more, uh, you know, just machines that could more efficiently kill each other, which is, a, you know, horrible thing. It really all started with world war one. Mm -hmm. So, Again, I go back to this idea of there's plenty of stories to tell set there, but you went, you and your brother, uh, again, medical background somewhat, as you mentioned, go to tell the story of, you know, you know, bad enough that not enough World War One veterans get attention. The stretcher bearers even further down the list, not somebody that, again, not if you stop to think about it, you know, they're deserving of, you know, their story being told and the accolades that they did receive. But it's not the first thing that comes to mind. You know, you think of the guys fighting in that trench warfare, no man's land, that sort of thing. So how important was it for you and your brother to to really portray that accurately rather than kind of romanticize it? Like, what's what's the challenge? You obviously you have to make it compelling, um, mm -hmm. but you want to make it as realistic as you can. Right. Yeah. And that was that was one of the biggest things that we ran into, because like war gets romanticized like so much. Um a perfect example would be, even though it's not World War One, would be like uh, Michael Bay's like Pearl Harbor, and like because like it, it's kind of like romanticized the event of like how I mean that that's a terrible terrible event that happened in American history, and it just seemed like with I know it with with them being a movie that they wanted to capture the romantic the romanticization of like war itself, um, but it kind of you got to see a little bit of like how terrible it was, but I don't know. But going back to 
World War One, it was really important for Ryan and I to like basically take what we were reading, especially from like firsthand accounts of soldiers. I I tried to dig through archives and find as much information as I could about actual stretcher bearers that served on the front lines, which is very hard to do because you don't really think about it, but a lot of people didn't keep diaries. They didn't really want to talk about what they experienced in war. So we lost a lot of history from the firsthand accounts. Um, a lot of books that you find now are actually from the British side. And it was mostly the Brits that you can find and the French, of course. And you can even find some German records as well for like stretcher bearers, what they did, what they did not do. Um, luckily enough that they're, were a couple rare books that I was able to find that were some firsthand accounts. And I also had like help with the, from the library of Congress, as well as uh, Dr. Sanders marble over at the um, Ar uh, army museum. Um, he was a big help too to actually like look up and kind of, I was able to ask questions and get kind of research that I had done on my own, like verified um, because like with the stretcher bears, when we think of them, like how it's depicted in the book, they basically had limited medical knowledge. They had nothing more than a canvas stretcher with wooden poles. So they were in the mud. It was wet. If you could tell a man who was a stretcher bearer by his hands because of the splinters and like how cracked his hands got because like how he was trying to grip the wood and it would swell. And then just everything, it, it, his hands were all cut up and bloody. Even when he was trying to treat like someone that, was wounded um but we we really just wanted to i don't know try to pick that side that's not it's not really talked about it's not really covered but they serve such a great purpose in the war to get people who were injured off the front line as well as sometimes picking up pieces of people what was left of them getting them put away so that you know others could function others could come in um Sometimes, uh, even with it, um, so, sorry, just like, uh, they're like just trying to like pick up pieces and stuff of people. Um, so I don't know if that's answering your question or not. I know. I'm no, kind no, of it, yeah. It, my it, end. <laughs> it, it, it really does. Cause again, it, it goes, it speaks to the, the challenges and, you know, we're talking about the kind of the advancement of, of humanity, right? And mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of advancements come through war, trying to end wars and, and things like that. You know, you can look at the jet plane, you can look at, you know, rockets and even nuclear power. Uh, you know, those are all things that technologies that came out of uh, the World War II. Uh, you mentioned yourself that, yeah, kind of kind of during the, the time of World War One, there wasn't a lot of medical knowledge. A lot of the medical knowledge we have now sort of started Mm -hmm. Civil War, and then you know, forty years later, uh, World War One. A lot of the things that that we learned, kind of forced to learn. You know, like you mentioned, plastic surgery, um, and so yeah, it wasn't like these. It wasn't like there was medical school like there is now with all this yeah. research and and data, or whatever. And a lot of these guys didn't, like you mentioned, they didn't even have a medical training. And I, I, the thing that I keep going back to when I read the book, and as we're talking about this, um, it's just the bravery. It's one thing to go into war. You've got a weapon. You're going to be able to defend yourself. You're running out into no man's land or you're advancing on a position or whatever. It takes a whole nother level of bravery in my mind to run out in the middle of a battle and you're not armed at all. You're just trying to, you know, 
bring back these guys that have been, you know, horrifically wounded in, in combat. So were, were there any accounts that you got to read or any stories you heard that like that even went above and beyond anything that surprised you when you're doing the research, even though you had already been obviously interested and knew a lot about World War One? Probably what surprised me the most doing the research was is that there's technically like a couple different classifications, and I didn't realize that with stretcher bearers that like um, there were upon doing research, it depended on the unit you're with. Like there were like certain ones that were designated by the Red Cross. Um, there were also specific stretcher bearers that were assigned to the ambulance corps. Now the ambulance corps at this time, it was either a you know a very early Ford automobile or it was a donkey in a wagon. Um, and that's kind of like what they used. Um, there's also a different type that a stretcher bearer for the guy, he had limited um, knowledge, but there was actually a guy called an aid man. Now, an aid man for the American forces side, we could kind of imagine him being more of like a combat medic that we see today that he maybe had a little bit more training, but he's not carrying like everything that a modern medic carries. I've read one account that I think that it was probably the most heartbreaking one. He was a medic. Um, He was from North Carolina and he said, I I'm running out of bandages. I don't have any more that are clean. I'm having to use the clothes that I have on and all that I have is like a little bit, I think he said of penicillin and that was it. He didn't have any morphine. He didn't have anything that he could really give him. And he was basically ripping his shirt, his undergarment, his underwear basically apart to make bandages and tourniquets just so he could try to put them on his guys that he was with. And I, I think that was the most kind of shocking that you really don't think about it now is like, you know, how limited supplies were and just like how close everything was to the front. Because I mean, sometimes um, the field hospitals, like you can see in the book, they're, you know, maybe between three and four miles back from the battlefield. Sometimes they are right up front with the battlefield. They're getting shelled right along with the rest of the troops. And um, at this time, too, we had a really big push for like nurses. So if you if you also notice in the book, most of the nurses are actually male. Mm -hmm. They're not female. So most of the nurses that you would encounter with field hospitals were actually male nurses. There were some female nurses that were in there as well, but sometimes you wouldn't necessarily see them unless you went to a actual like bigger hospital. Um, Because that's kind of like how it worked. There's like a triage that you would go to like a little smaller field hospital. And then there'd be a much bigger hospital further away from the battle that you could go to. Like if you had a major wound or you had your leg blown off and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, any surprises? So that's kind of the, the, the story side, which again, uh, I think everybody should read this book. It Again, it's a story worth telling. And uh, as you can hear from what Reed is saying and all the research he did, it's as accurate as, as he and his brother could make it. Uh, talk a little bit about like technically making the book. Were there any surprises? I think this is, the, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the biggest project you've ever done. And and uh, what were some kind of challenges that you, that you had you didn't necessarily foresee in getting this book created? Well, definitely with getting the book created was trying to depict everything as realistic as possible. Um, 
having medical knowledge was great. Um, having access to um, terrible pictures was also a good thing to have because when you when you look at wounds, you kind of need to know what it looks like. What does it look right. like when a guy's jaw gets shot off um, by a high-powered rifle? So I I had access to that. It, this is also like the first digital comic I've actually ever done. Um, that was a big thing that Dead Reckoning was interested in is that they wanted it to be done digitally. So this was the first time that I did a complete work digitally. I ha- I've been traditional sent uh, before, um, just regular pen and ink. But everything that you see here was done by me. It was all done. It was done in Clip Studio, and then it was like colored in Photoshop. So even with the texture that you see that's up there, it's it's all Photoshop that's done. Um, so it was a bit of a learning curve to get used to that, um, especially because trying to get Fine detail with a Cintiq is so much different than a pen and a nib. It's just, it, it was just, it was fun to learn how to do it um, with the book. And I'm, I'm kind of grateful I got that opportunity so that, you know, I have that for future projects that I can, you know, use digital um, as a way of going forward, but still do traditional too. Like I, I still do mainly most of my work is still done traditional and, um, I'm working on like another project right now that if if it can get uh, into a publisher that it'll be like probably more traditional with some digital. So at least there'll be some artwork that I'll have too because it, it's so much different than when you have digital because there's no physical piece of artwork. It's all digital that exists on a computer. So if someone were to like buy a piece of artwork for me and they wanted it to be from the stretcher bearers book, it would just be a, you know, basically like a printout. Right, so right. yeah. And that, that's the biggest thing for me is that with being a comic book fan and being a comic book collector as well, I collect artwork too. So it's, it was such a big transition to like go from like physical paper to a digital platform um but it was an interesting learning curve but it was fun uh, my my twin brother ryan he kind of got thrown in um besides being a my co-author and research researcher as well he actually did the lettering um and he has never used um any type of adobe software so mm-hmm. i basically like threw him in and said good luck and i gave <laughs> him a 30 minute crash course uh with <laughs> how to use adobe um illustrator and that was kind of it. And he kind of learned, uh, kind of learned from Blambot a little bit of like going online and like watching video tutorials. So it was an adjustment for him because he was seeing COVID patients during the day. And then at night he was coming home and he was lettering the comic. Uh, he fell asleep a couple times lettering the comic, uh, but through persistence and I mean, just you know, barreling through, he, he got it done. So I was appreciative of that, of that really. So that, I know that was a challenge for him. Well, um, I, I mean, lettering is one of those things. If you don't get it right, you notice mm-hmm. if you get it right, it's, it's kind of in the background. I didn't, it never pulled me out of the story. I didn't see anything that was wrong with the lettering. So I guess kudos to Ryan for, yeah, I'm surprised <laughs> to hear that, that usually somebody letters something for the first time is going to make some, some mistakes in placement or, pacing because as you know where you put the letters how many words you have per line 
how many words you have per balloon. Mm-hmm. That, that totally affects how fast or slow somebody reads the book. It affects the pacing. So I think he did a really good job. I'm su- uh, yeah, I'm very surprised to hear that he's never lettered anything before. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, the biggest help was, I know, I can't remember the guy's name, and I follow him on Twitter, and I, I hate that I can't remember. He just put out a book um, about, like, how to do, like, comic book lettering, and I, I've got a copy now that's, like, sitting beside me because, like, I told Ryan, I was like, I need to learn how to do that. Like, <laughs> I, I have a background in graphic design, so I know the Adobe software, but you're right. You know, with lettering, you have to be particular about the spacing, the sizing, and you don't want it to be too crowded. And you want it to read correctly. Um, and that was the biggest thing that what we ended up doing is that he would basically letter a page and he would send it to me and then I would look at it. And I would kind of compare it to like comics that I love. Like, so we would look at like, say some old Sergeant Rock comics, or we would look at Unknown Soldier. Um, So we were trying to basically like give it the feel that, because if you notice in it, how there's a lot of noise, a lot of sound effects that's in the book because war is very, very loud. And we wanted to feel that way because when you read the old, like, I love the old Sergeant Rock comics and especially the Unknown Soldier. And when I read it, it just, there's so much audible, you know, language in there with the sound in the comic that we wanted that to carry through as well. So, um, so definitely kudos to my, to my better half, my twin for, uh, <laughs> for getting it right. <laughs> and yeah, I guess, be, yeah. Being that you're both a writer and an illustrator, I'm always curious um, when you're pacing things out when you're, I mean, do you work from a full script or you just do outline? Cause you can already visualize what you're going to draw. Like what's your, what's your process? I mean, I know some, some people who write and they literally write a script as if it were going to be another artist and then go and draw everything. Others, their script is very loose. Cause they already know they'll uh, you know, when I go to draw it, I'll know what I mean. So I only need to put like two words here for this panel or what have you. What's the, what's the process that you use? Pretty much, we try to follow what's known as the Marvel method. Um, that it's kind of like just how my brain works. It's like I see everything in pictures, and mm-hmm. then like I'll draw the picture and then kind of like add the dialogue in there. But with having the research, like we um created basically like a timeline. So, like, if you look in the comic, everything it goes by days, and like right. Maxwell's writing uh, like a journal. And so we had a timeline that we knew is like, this is the main event. This is what's happening in the battle. This is what's going on. So I could draw from that and take that and add that in. So as I was drawing, I'd constantly have this timeline up. So I'd be like, okay, so this needs to be put in here. And then I would draw it. And then we would put it in there in a way with the language and the word balloons. Um, And we would do it that way. So actually before anything ever got typed, it was all hand drawn and hand penciled by me. And then when we went through and we're bef- when we went through because we had to physically like type it up as a um, as a word document, as a script so mm-hmm. that our editor could edit over it because no one wants to read my handwriting right. on like a hundred and some pages. So as we typed it out, we actually were editing that as well. So really the comic you see now, it probably went through, I don't know, maybe three or four edits before it even went to an editor. 
um, like a physical editor at Dead Reckoning. So like there was a lot of editing that kind of went on with it. And then it was tweaked and tweaked until it became perfect. And if you were to look at some of the really rough sketches that I laid out, a lot of what I sketched out can be seen in the pictures of the book itself. But there was so, some stuff you had to go back and redraw once you started putting the script in. Yeah, there there was there was some really one of the hardest parts was is that because this being the first comic that I've done is that I had the terrible habit of that as the book went on, I would forget to put in word balloon. Like I would try to at least pencil in where the word balloons were going right. to be. And then when I was doing the, the digital pencils and then the inks, leave enough room as I went along. Um, sometimes I didn't do that and it yeah. can, it can show a little bit right. that everything got kind of like squeezed tight and then you had to like make room for the word balloons. So um, there was tweaking with that. I had to tweak some images because maybe they were, maybe too gory a little bit. I had to change the, the cover because I had a guy getting blown up with his guts hanging out and they were like, that's, that's too violent. Reed, yeah. you gotta, yeah. you gotta change that. So I was like, that's, that's fine. I mean, cause you know, they marketing knows what's going to sell the book. And if it's right. a little too graphic, you know, you don't, you don't want to freak yeah, anybody you, out. You don't, you don't <laughs> want people thinking it's like some zombie yeah. or a horror story. You want to, yeah, I totally, yeah. yeah, totally got it. Well, uh, it's a fantastic story, everybody. I do recommend you check it out. It's uh, it's a part of our history. And again, these are some unsung heroes. And, you know, when it comes to war comics, I'm, I'm always a big fan of, of you know, telling the stories of, of some of these heroes that maybe haven't gotten the recognition they deserve. So I uh, appreciate the time, Reed. Where can everybody pick up the book? Uh, where's the best place to, for them to find it? Pretty much um, any place books are sold, even Walmart, you can find it. Um, I highly recommend going to either your local comic book shop to get it, or you can go to the United, um, the U.S. Enable Press. Um, you can get it from there and DeadReckoning.com. Um, it's also available on Amazon as well as Barnes and Nobles and Books a Million. Um, and if you have a local bookshop that you prefer to go to, definitely go to them, get some, give them some business, and order the book from there. But pretty much, it's available anywhere books are sold now. Great. And I'll put a link, everybody, to the uh, the U U.S. Naval Press and Dead Reckoning sites uh, in the show notes so you can go look there. I'll also put a link to your social media in the show notes if anybody wants to follow you and your work, Reed. Where's the best place online uh, for somebody to follow your work? Um, I'm mostly active on Instagram, and it's just at um, all lowercase Reed Beeman Art. And it's same thing with um, Twitter as well. Um, I don't know. I'm just more active on Instagram. I'm still trying to figure out Twitter. Twitter's weird. <laughs> well, as a visual guy, you know, you said you see everything in pictures. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Twitter's a little more on the word side, Instagram more on the visual. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense, yeah. but I'll, I'll put links to both everybody, to uh, both Instagram and Twitter for Reed's accounts in the show notes as well. So if you're having trouble finding them, you can just go and click there uh, again, Reed. Thanks so much for the time. Books really great. I uh, really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about it. Uh, best of luck. Hope, uh, hope it does really well for you. Thank you. Uh, and to all you listeners, we want to thank you for joining us as always. We appreciate the support and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. 
Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.